welcome to Start, Scale, Disrupt. My name is Christopher Goodfellow and I'm Managing Editor of Business Zone. In a minute I'll be joined by Depeche, who's the CMO of Tukenbox, a subscription service. He's also the uh, an advisor at Seedcamp and has worked with a, a huge range of companies in, in C2B marketing roles. Everybody from fantastic startups like Lost My Name right through to Tesco's and Ann Summers. So we've got an episode today absolutely packed with advice on how to get your early marketing strategy in place and, and how to start scaling that. And that covers everything from understanding CPAs uh, and the experimental phase. You know, How much should you invest? What kind of return on investment should you be looking for early on? How should you understand customers and demographics? What are the risks there and how do you establish product market fit? So you go through all of the kind of nuts and bolts of that stuff, right through to things like surveying your customers. So fantastic episode today, and I really appreciate him appearing on the pod. Any feedback, as always, tweet me at Business Zone, or you can email me direct at chris.goodfellow at sifmedia.co.uk. Thank you. Welcome to the podcast today, Deepesh. Thank you. Yeah, so I know you've had quite a, an interesting um, number of roles over over the last few years, including recently at Tukenbox, and uh, you, you're obviously a CCAP mentor as well. Should it be useful to maybe start by giving a bit of context and kind of what you're working on at the moment and um, where you've built up the, the expertise you have? Sure. So I've been working for various companies over the last two, three years, um, contracting and supporting with marketing growth, essentially, um, and um, I've spent the last just under 12 months with Tukenbox, and it's a Series A startup in the kids industry, selling arts and crafts subscription, predominantly for kids aged three to eight, and it's been a really interesting period of growth for us. And I'll soon be moving on to my own ventures, running Facebook marketing for small and medium-sized businesses. And essentially my background, I started off as a developer 20 years ago, um, accidentally fell into marketing through conversion rate optimization some 15 years ago and really kind of developed my understanding of marketing pretty much from big companies down. So, you know, I've worked for Tesco, I've worked for Ann Summers, um, hotel company, and over the last five years, maybe six years, focused exclusively with startups and medium-sized businesses. Um, and it's been a real fascinating journey um, for me to learn and grow Getting involved with the likes of Seed Camp, mentoring startups, um, it, it's, it's amazing. It's inspiring to meet so many founders with amazing ideas. Um, and interestingly, also seeing how many of those stick. Um, you know, for every 100 great ideas, there'll be one that really, really takes off. And it's, for me, it's giving back to the entrepreneurial community as much as I can from my experience in growth marketing. Brilliant. And it'd be interesting to hear a tiny bit more about Lost My Name. You know, obviously they've had a fantastic growth story and we, we've covered the the the, uh, the business on on the site before. I mean, how what was it like when you joined and, and kind of how, how did it change over, over the time you were there? Sure. So it was quite fortuitous how I joined. Um, so the founder at the time was looking for someone who was working in Tesco as a way of um, retailing their product came across my profile um, and saw that I was a marketer and said, look, we're after some marketing expertise. So I actually came on on a short-term contract just to see what I could do with marketing. At the time, the biggest sales channel was through uh, resellers, such as Not On The High Street. And there was some testing going on with direct sales, but nothing um, phenomenal. So 
within four weeks after spinning multiple marketing plates, um, one of them stuck and that one was Facebook advertising. So at that time, there were, I think, about 10 of us, all of us on contract working from co-sharing space in Old Street and just trying to see how this thing you know, could develop. We already knew we could sell through resellers. Could we now reach these customers directly? And that's really where Facebook advertising came on. So, you know, within a few weeks and months, we found our traction point. And really from then, it was just takeoff. Ryan, what kind of, by the time you finished that process, I mean, how, how big had that, that Facebook marketing channel grown based in terms of kind of spend and, and the possible results as well? Sure. So at the time, you know, we started off where Facebook was spending maybe anywhere between 10, 20, 50 pound a day. There's some small tests going on. And, you know, before I joined, there was already a lot of testing that had gone on, but nothing spectacular that we could kind of scale and grow from. And Facebook was also at its infancy at the time. So I've been working with the platform a year. I kind of knew the basics, but it was a really clunky system. But I think what helps to cut through was to consider how Facebook is different from other platforms like affiliates, like paid search, in that you're actually targeting people that don't have an intent. And so a lot of our targeting, our creative, our messaging was around disrupting their flow within the social media tool to get them to take an interest in what we were doing in, in our book. And at the time, we were testing multiple creatives, audiences, when we found our traction point, we would slowly, slowly start to increase spend. And what we found, and you know, bearing in mind this is early 2014, there wasn't a huge amount of competition. So the cost per click that we were paying at the time was much lower than I've seen um, ever since, which was down to just being um, on the platform quite early on. Um, and essentially, as we started to grow in confidence, we started to scale up our spend um, really daily um, to the point that we were spending, you know, five figures um, a, a month within two two months of scaling. So, you know, going from really low thousands a month to tens of thousands a month um, in a few months and Facebook becoming a significant channel for us was quite a phenomenal, phenomenal thing to happen and took us all by surprise. Um, at the same time, also lost my name were raising seed investment. We were also on Dragon's Den, which was a, a great PR opportunity for us. And it just really backed up by everything we were doing through Facebook. Um, and really literally into 2014, we went from um, you know, selling a good number of books through resellers, 30,000 roughly in 2013, to 10xing that in 2014, which was completely unexpected and amazing uh, in equal measures. Thinking uh, about sort of startups you're working with today, um, you know, what kind of costs are, are people looking to start out with when it comes to experimenting? I mean, you mentioned as low as kind of £10 a day uh, when, you, when you're with Lost My Name. I mean, it, w what's that like today and where would you recommend as a kind of starting point for a startup that's, that's looking to, to work out, you know, what channels will be effective and, and what their cost per acquisition will end up being? Sure. So, I mean, to give you an example, I met with a, um, a founder yesterday who's locally based in Bristol. He sells local products. So his market is really within a square mile of his location. And actually, he spends £40 on average a month on Facebook advertising. Um, and his his company's pretty much driven through Facebook. So his, you know, his goal is to get people to visit his physical store. Um, but, you know, for, for a company of, I think he's driven his fan page to eight to 9,000 people in the space of six months. 
um, and through great advertising, targeting, messaging offers, etc., he's grown a real strong following. Um, you know, it doesn't need a huge amount of spend, depending on what you want out of it. You know, if you're a company that's been funded, you've got half a million seed round, and you're now being expected to plow that into marketing, then you know you can afford to spend hundreds a day and scale quickly. Um, but as I work with a range of founders and SMEs, it really doesn't need to be that much. Um, you know, five, 10 pound a day can help you learn a ton of stuff within a week that you can then refine and build on as well. Right, and could you give a, a kind of a bit more um, detail around the kind of cost per acquisition stuff? So, I mean, what what role does it have in that early experiment and experiment? It's, it's a great, yeah, it's a great question. And actually, when I speak to founders about this, I always say, in at the very early stages, don't expect a return. Um, because when you go into any kind of advertising, and from the off, you know, you've got a 10 pound CPA target, or you want to hit certain targets, that will constrain your testing. And the way I say to founders to get started is, whatever budget you're looking to work on, experiment and, and be able to take a risk so you know are you happy let's say you've got 500 pounds to spend over four weeks on facebook advertising if that if that brings you zero return but a ton of learnings is that good enough to then build on and develop from or are you expecting that 500 pounds to turn into 1500 because the type of testing will be severely hampered if you're just looking directly for an ROI. And I think this is also what helped us at Lost My Name, that there wasn't a huge expectation. You know, we were spending at the early part two, 3,000 a month, maybe making 2,000 back, so a net, net loss. But the business was still looking to learn, and it was a learning phase that helped us to develop our ads. So, you know, three to four months of loss making on Facebook for Lost My Name actually led to us having the confidence to scale and make profit and, and it is a real difficult thing to take for a founder, um, but essentially the amount of risk you're willing to take will equate to the amount that you're willing to test and learn from as well. And that, that three to four month period you mentioned there, I mean, is that is that typical or is that specific to Lost My Name? No, I don't think it's typical. I think certainly now you can do that a lot faster. You know, back then there weren't many online guides there weren't many experts the even the facebook platform there wasn't much help coming from facebook so i think in in, in today's world if we were doing that again we would have made those learnings within two to four weeks to be honest um but yeah i, I think that really depends on size of budget so you know if you've only got 50 pounds to spend a week then you're going to take longer to learn than than someone else who's got 50 pounds a day Okay. And what about in terms of sort of identifying um, which platforms to look at when we're talking about online spend? I mean, it's kind of a, the level of uh, demographic data that's out there and, and the number of platforms is, is slightly overwhelming. So, I mean, is there any, any advice you can give around kind of shaping that early experimentation? You know, where, where should you start? How do you know where to start and which, which platform should you look to? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is where a, a kind of deeper understanding of the customer sits in. So, when I, when I talk to founders, you know, my deep experience is with Facebook advertising, but it's not right for everyone. So, you know, if you're looking to market B2B, for example, Facebook isn't natu naturally the fourth call. Um, maybe it's more LinkedIn. If you are targeting a certain type of demographic, let's say grandparents, there's far fewer grandparents on Facebook than there are, you know, under 40s, for example. And there are other methods to reach grandparents, um, running co competitions, collecting email addresses, using email marketing, et cetera. 
So when I look at this, I look at the type of product that you've got, who, who that consumer is, you know, and at the early, early stages, who that consumer is, is often quite no, nothing more than a hypothesis. And for me as a marketer, it says test those hypotheses. So even at Tukenbox, we've gone through testing multiple hypotheses. So we know predominantly we want to target women, um, specifically mums. However, we haven't quite got the kind of age bands right. And actually what we found is there are a range of age bands that give us different cost per acquisitions that also give us different lifetime values. And actually their needs are quite different. So we have customers who are mums between the age of 18 to 24, and actually the cost per acquisition is cheaper, but their lifetime value is lower. So these are mums who don't necessarily have a huge amount of disposable income, whereas the mums who are 25 to 35 are more of our core market, but they're a lot more expensive to reach because the amount of advertisers going after those mums specifically. Um, but we're always testing these hypotheses. You know, dads have started to pick up, but for us, dads are more 30 to 40. Um, and, and this comes through, especially with something like Facebook, you can test these demographics. Um, in other ways, you know, Google Analytics will give you some high level demographic data of age and gender that are coming in. So no matter what channels you're driving traffic through, if you've got Google Analytics installed in the right way, you can start to pick up these demographics and learn from them and start testing those in different channels, paid search, paid social, et cetera, um, even affiliates and actually see where you're actually getting traction. So really early on, don't have a conceived idea of where your customers are until you've tested it. Test, learn, and then gain the traction from all of that learning. Okay, and when it comes to Tukenbox, I mean, first might be useful if you just give us a, a really brief int introduction to what it is, but then also, are, are there any other kind of demographics or, or methods of targeting you've looked at beyond sort of age and gender that, that were quite sort of interesting or unique um, that you played around with there? Sure, so Tukenbox started off some five years ago, actually, this month, as an idea from our founder to keep her children busy um, at home and actually going beyond just giving them arts and crafts to play with, actually packaging those arts and crafts up with instructions and also the right tools and ingredients, I guess, to make to make to actually make a craft. So the analogy that I often give is in the Lego world, you can buy a box of Lego and give the, that to the child and let them come up with some ideas. Or you can buy the Lego boxes that have the instructions and all the pieces. And that's really where Token Box play. Um, in terms of delivering arts and crafts to children aged three to eight. So that's our kind of core proposition right now. Um, and in terms of kind of testing the uh, types of demographics, you know, really from the off with our founder being a mum and also with early feedback from friends, family, and initially from customers, it was clear that there was a market and a need from similar like-minded mums. So. I think that often plays a big part as a founder. You will often know much better than anyone else who your target market market is because you've come up with that idea for a reason. Um, but then, you know, for us, we can go beyond that. So we know, for example, it's not just parents buying it for themselves. We collect the uh, relationship status at the time of signing up for our product. So we know how many uncles and aunts are buying or grandparents, uh, the dads and moms, et cetera. Going beyond that, we also use Net Promoter Score to look at the satisfaction ratings of those that are signing up to Tukenbox, and we can also split that out by the relationship to the child. So, for example, we'll know that 
aunts and uncles are a lot more satisfied with the product um, than maybe dads. And we can then look into the reasons why and look to fix those so that when we're in market, whether it's the messaging or the platform, we're finding these people in the right way um, with the right communication and getting the right value proposition across as well. So, you know, age and gender is a key one, but as an example for Lost My Name, also the relationship to the child as well. Okay, and obviously at Toucan Box and, and eventually at Lost My Name too, you had a really uh, sort of evolved um, way to, to look at data and, and, and the KPIs and kind of trace things back. Um, I just wonder, you know, with, with that level of complexity, um, what, what are your kind of North Star metrics for Toucan Box? I mean, are there any particular KPIs where you're like, you know, these are the two or three numbers that really sort of, uh, you know, show our end success or, you know, this is what really what, how we steer our overall effort? Sure. So, I mean, with Toucan Box being a subscription business, our North Star is lifetime value. So um, we'll pay an acquisition to bring a customer through the door through a free box promotion. But essentially, we need that uh, marketing investment and also the product cost to pay back over a series of times. So we measure lifetime value over a 12 month period and we then break that down into channels to look at what our acquisition costs are and how long it takes to pay back as well. This, this is a common challenge for subscription companies that are always pushing forward their ROI. So, you know, if you have a payback period of five months, then any marketing investment right now, whether it's a 10K campaign or 100K, is not going to return a positive for three, four, five months time. Actually managing, managing cash flow, budgeting, etc around that becomes a huge difficulty um, if you take lost my name or any e-commerce product where you're actually judging your cost per acquisition based on the basket value and therefore the return on investment on that single purchase you, you get that immediate feedback and i'd argue it's much easier as a marketer to work within that kind of um, framework than it is within the subscription framework and there are some kind of key metrics within subscription that um, you'd, you'd, you'll often look at so for example the conversion rate from your first subscription to your second is a key indicator as to what the quality of the traffic has been and also the quality of the product experience. Um, and then looking at what I call the early churn. So then once you've got them into their second subscription, how many people are making it to their fifth um, generally? And I don't know if this applies to every single subscription company, but generally the fourth or fifth subscription is the key position where once you get them over that hurdle they're more likely to stay after and then you look at kind of the kind of maturity curve of customers after that so essentially the north stars will differ on the type of business um, for one-off transactional it would be cpa and roi straight off the bat and then you can look at lifetime value and you know the virality effects of each of those purchases um, further along the line as we did at lost my name but initially when you're looking at growth for an e-commerce business you'd look directly at cpa and roi for a subscription business, it will take a bit longer to mature. Um, but once you have the data and the confidence, you'll eventually start to scale up your channels. Okay, and so taking it back a little bit, so we, we talked about sort of experimentation and the early um, sort of ways of finding out, you know, how you're going to market, what channels are going to work, um, how you will, how you can boost sort of customer lifetime value by by winning the right type of customers. Uh, and also demographics too. Um, I, I just wonder at what point you start to um, sort of formalize customer personas or what, what you think about the use of uh, customer personas generally. So I'm a big advocate of personas. Um, and, you know, at the early stage, it doesn't have to be super accurate. Just get something down, get an idea of who, who your target market is and flesh it out as you learn and develop. So 
you know, a great way of doing that is once you start to make a few sales, start to survey them. You know, why did you choose our product? What's your, I don't know, what's your usual activity around the product that's being sold? How do you interact usually with the product? You can gain so much information. Um, so one of the great things that Packed Coffee did was a yearly survey that went out to their customers to better understand how their lifestyles and behaviors were changing so that the product and the business could keep up with it. Um, you know, sometimes you might have a great product, a great market fit, but customer behaviors change, the marketplace changes, and you have to keep up with that as well. So having an idea of persona will then help you to relate back to how your product needs to develop and also how marketing need to communicate. Um, so in the early stages, I'd start off with a really loose framework. So, you know, you can write, you can start from, a gender split or an age split and then develop the understanding beyond that so you might find that for example for token box we know that the women 35 you know yeah maybe 35 to 45 are not our prime market generally the cost per acquisition is not great and our lifetime value is uh, um, not as strong because they are parents with kids generally older than you know three to eight which is our, our core market so there may be personas that actually you identify that you don't want to target um, and, and on one side, you avoid them in your marketing for your existing products. On the other side, you say, hang on a second, there's an untapped opportunity here. We need a new product for these guys. So you can kind of look at that um, both ways as well. Right, and then, and then again, I guess it comes back to that idea of sort of testing hypotheses. So you think that this is a possible customer segment or persona, and then you, you work out whether or not that's the case and then sort of evolve accordingly. That's right, yeah. And, you know, when we talk about asking customers, as a as a bootstrapped founder, there's nothing stopping you from going on the street, canvassing feedback, asking your friends and family, going through your LinkedIn contacts, your Facebook friends, all that kind of stuff. Gather as much information as possible. Um, recently, a founder was looking at a new product idea and just posted it out on his Facebook feed and said, "What do you think?" And you know, I'd love to hear back from dads of this age. Um, and, and people sh shared it with their own friends and he got a ton of feedback just from doing that. So it doesn't have to be paid marketing. Look at any opportunity to gain some kind of feedback um, and then build on that as well. Yeah, I don't know if you've seen it, but floating around on the internet somewhere is the uh, the original email asking that kind of question about Linux. Um, mm. And, and that's, that's kind of funny to watch, you know, somebody um, all, the, all those years ago just, just emailed their address book and kind of said, oh, I'm thinking of building this operating system, you know, what do you think? And that, what, what ended up coming out of that? Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of businesses are looking at the kind of Silicon Valley growth hacking and, you know, one of the core misconceptions is that you'll find a silver bullet and growth hacking is the thing that will help deliver it. Well, actually, I'm not a big fan of the term growth hacking, but the mindset and the process behind it is really spot on and it's about fast iterative testing so you know a test for example if we were testing a landing page for token box and we had targeting for men for sorry um, for dads mums and grandparents we could develop a landing page for each of those but actually the fastest test would be let's just do a landing page for mums if that works then let's do it for dads and if the mums ones work then we can build on from that so it's kind of thinking about the MVP, so the minimal viable product, when it comes to testing as well. So the faster you test, the faster you're going to learn. Yeah, and I think uh, you made a great point in one of your LinkedIn posts about the, the questioning process and just having right at the end of your 
at a buying process online, just that question, you know, where, where did you first hear, hear about us? Because I know it is really difficult to track uh, sort of customer acquisition when people, you know, leave the site, maybe come back a few days later, or, you know, they might have seen you on uh, an advert, but won't remember until, you know, a month later even. So I, I thought it was really interesting to have that, that question at the final point of purchase. Yeah, that's right, because what I found time and time again is when you speak to customers, and I'm talking about focus groups and face-to-face, um, you might have data on them, you know, they're an existing customer and you see that they signed up through Facebook or Face Search. But when you speak to them and say, well, so, so how did you actually hear about us? It's very different to what the data tells you. So, oh, my friend mentioned it at school and I then saw the ad on Facebook and then I thought I'd have a look. Well, actually, the hard data will only tell you that the customer saw you on Facebook and converted. What you're missing is the fact that the customer actually heard about you through a playground chat. Now, that then gives us a different view of, all right, how do we then facilitate more playground tracks? So you, you kind of have to look beyond the data at times, and that's something which is a super simple thing to do. You set up a survey that fires up um, you know, 20, 30 seconds after the confirmation page loads just to say, how did you hear about us? And you, you gain so much insight from that. Brilliant. And we talked a little bit before the call uh, or before we started recording um, about sort of when you know, doing some of the other more more traditional marketing routes in the in the background um, that will you know hopefully kick in later on. I just thought it would be interesting to talk about you know when if if you're just doing this kind of online ad spend, like what you might be doing in the background to support that, and then when that starts to become effective. Yeah, so I mean, it's 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 again down to product and market. So for example, if if you're targeting an older demographic that may be reading more magazines and newspapers than being online, that will drive you towards testing different formats. Um, and initially, for most businesses that are transacting online, you know, paid search, paid social, and generally affiliates are the top three channels that I, I develop as a go-to. Um, and then beyond that, it's really taking time to look at where else could the customer be. So as a simple example, insert swaps, it's, it's something which has been going on for many years now. Um, so you can work on a reciprocal with another company where you put your inserts into their dispatch orders and vice versa. And it increases your reach for very little cost apart from the print media. Um, or you could do um, kind of paid inserts into magazines or newspapers, etc. You can run competitions, grab email addresses, use email marketing to bring them into the brand and eventually convert into the product. But again, it depends on where those customers are more likely to be and running those tests in that kind of area. And, you know, I love, I love the um, analogies around how successful people will have to practice and practice and they fail so often, but when they win, they win big. Um, so, you know, Michael Jordan was talking about how many hoops he missed in his career, but actually when he really had to make those hoops and hit the uh, target, he did it. And that comes through testing and learning. And that's essentially what I try to bring into a kind of marketing ethos is you are going to have lots of misses, but when you get those big wins and you're basing it on those learnings, that's when things really take off. How should you? How should uh, so founders think about stuff that's really, really hard to demonstrate any immediate ROI from? So things like blogging or speaking at public events, um, you know, networking things like that. I mean, how how can you kind of balance that when you're so time poor and, and really trying to move through this process quite quickly? Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the um, great things about Lost My Name is that they took PR seriously and they took it seriously from the start. So, you know, one of the co-founders had a good level of experience in advertising. 
And initially we had traction through the B2B press, uh, but that helped us up to open the door for B2C as well. And actually some of these things you have to take on as a bet. So, you know, I'm going to go and talk at this conference about building a, a full stack business about publishing, or I'm going to go and write this blog article for um, Business Insider. Some of these things are not going to give you an ROI, but you know what, if someone from uh, Mashable all of a sudden sees that you've written for Business Insider and now they want to profile you and then, you know, Sky News have got an article around a particular area, unless you're taking those tests and those bets, you know, you're not going to get picked up on those opportunistic um, opportunities that pop up. So it's kind of, it's, it's test and learn again and making a call between what feels like a valid test and what doesn't. And it is really difficult, especially when you are marketing it, the product, you're also developing the product, you're also running the operations, you're also managing cash flow. Um, and it is an extremely difficult thing to bounce out. And I think the sooner you can get help um, on those different areas, the better to focus your time on those biggest return areas. Okay, which kind of brings me on quite nicely to the last question. We wrote about uh, recently on Business Zone about when to bring in marketing expertise. So it should be interesting to know, sort of, first of all, just you know, any, any advice around knowing um, when that might be useful, when that might be possible. But also, as a kind of secondary point, you know, how how involved should founders be, particularly when you know establishing product market fit is is such a key part of, of marketing and, and learning about the audience. I, I just wonder if you could help us and in, in kind of share any advice in that area. Sure. So the golden word there is product market fit. And, you know, I, I, if that's one thing that I could really press home to founders, SMEs, et cetera, it's if you've got that product market fit and you can validate it in, in the respect of customers are buying your product, you've got some kind of profitability or some kind of traction, that's the time for me to start bringing in marketing expertise. If you don't yet know if your product is right for the market and you bring in marketing expertise, it will take longer to get um a result because all those learnings that you could have made yourself and Marcus is now having to make those for you. But if you've made those learnings, you know, you've done it bootstrapped, you, you've done surveys to your friends and family, or maybe to a few of your customers, the more data and learnings you can give to a marketer, the faster they'll be able to take that on and develop and build on from that. So, you know, my view on that of when to bring a marketer on board is when you are confident you've found that product market fit. Um, and you can actually pass the baton on and, and still be involved, but essentially bring on someone that's actually got a lot more deeper experience, especially in the sector and the type of consumer you're trying to market to. You know, all marketers are different. Um, so, you know, my background is not specifically B2B. B2C is my thing. So um, it's finding people who are able to bring their experience from the sector you're involved with that can help you to scale faster than you can do it on your own. Brilliant. Thanks so much for helping us and joining the podcast today, Deepesh. Pleasure. Thanks for having me on board.